0: Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 103 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at nottreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel, let's get on with the show. Um. So who are you and what do you do?
1: My name is Molly Obamsoin, and I'm a bassist and composer, singer, band leader.
0: And you've got a newish album out?
1: Yes, newish. Yeah. October 2022.
0: It's called Sweet Tooth. And that's your debut solo? Would that be the right way to say
1: yeah, it it's so weird. It's my <laughs> debut. I mean, I'm a, you know, bass player, usually side person, so I've been on recordings before, obviously. And I had a band previously where I was theoretically one of the three front people. But debut solo. I don't know. It feels like the debut.
0: <laughs> Prior to recording, we were talking about the fact that you're coming up where I live to Montreal for the Jazz Fest, which is incredible and I was at the launch for the event and saw your name and immediately Mm -hmm. sent an email saying, I'd love to have you here on the show because when I heard Sweet Tooth, it hit a lot of really interesting genres and thinking about music and the fact that you're a bass player also really interests me. Let's go back a little bit and talk about when did you first start playing the bass?
1: Oh, man, I was in fifth grade, so... In my hometown, it's a small rural town in western Maine. Put yourself there in your mind, and it it was winter.
0: There was (laughs) plumes of smoke from the.
1: (laughs) Yes, I had to walk fifty miles to school through the snow. No, um, there's a great string program in the school. So every little third grader started playing fiddle, and in fourth grade you got to access other instruments. I chose clarinet and cello. And then by fifth grade, I was drawn to the bass and started playing upright bass and really was always most dedicated to upright. I do play some electric, but upright's really my
0: my main axe. Yeah, I've known you as in upright. And then when I was getting ready for the conversation, I saw a couple of interesting photos of you playing electric. And I think that's also a worthy conversation. Was it one of those things where you wanted to play in bands and it's just too hard to carry around the stand-up or When did you introduce electric into your knowledge of the bass?
1: I did start playing electric in high school. I actually, the first band that I was ever in. uh, (laughs) I've heard this podcast before and I love hearing people talk about their high school band.
0: It's so much fun.
1: Yeah, so uh, it was a group of us, all the guitar players, the classic story, but I was already an upright player. So I was like, I'll definitely play electric bass. and we started playing Ramones songs. Those were like my first songs on the electric.
0: Okay, but Ramones weren't all that happening then too. So there was oh. other stuff going on. Tell me what else, what other songs were they pushing to play then?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, these were some like rural Maine kids and they listened to a lot of country rock. Like honestly, Nickelback was definitely one of the, one of the touchstones.
0: Nickelback's one of those interesting bands where I feel in the past two years, suddenly people are turning the corner, and it's not the butt of the joke anymore.
1: Wow, is it? Okay, I'm not into yeah. that. <laughs> it's still the butt for me. My dad is a musician, and so I grew up with a lot of exposure to like the kind of music he plays, old jazz songs and blues and stuff. But these kids that I was playing with in high school were really into Van Halen and like, all of this... like. You know, this is the kind of repertoire that was totally not in my listening repertoire at 14. And so I was really kind of winging it and not knowing what I was doing. Ramones was like one good overlap for us.
0: (laughs) And if they had turned to you, Molly, and said, what do you want to play? What do you think you would have said at that point?
1: Oh, my gosh. At 14? Probably, well, I was listening to a lot of like pop punk and like some 41. But I also... Avril Lavigne like I don't know these are like just the touchstones of that era for me
0: it's interesting how you keep mentioning Canadian rock bands or artists it's
1: true that is really weird what's I mean, going Maine. on Maine, Maine is, is close like, for sure Maine is like Canada's pants
0: <laughs> but I thought you were going to go to Soundgarden or Nirvana or mm-hmm. Pearl Jam
1: not yet no definitely wasn't listening I wish I was <laughs>
0: And so talk about the influence of your dad then, because I do find that when people take the instrument on early, there's something with the parents. It's very rare that the kid discovered it on their own, or it's just they were in a school and their friends happened to be playing. They picked up an instrument. Did you find yourself loving that music at the same age? It's such a standard age to be very much teenager rebelling against anything your parents like.
1: Yeah, so let let me think. I mean. My dad, yeah, he plays old jazz songs. He plays blues and rock. My, I'm really close with my dad. And he, my, I have a bunch of older brothers too, older siblings, and they all play music in some capacity. Okay. Yeah, drummer brother, have an uncle that's a bassist, have my oldest sister is in an acid rock band out in the West Coast. So a lot of things going on musically in my family. And I wanted to play bass because, yeah, my brother played drums and my dad played guitar. It seemed to make sense. I have a sister that's two years older than me and it was for some birthday or Christmas and they bought us a couple of really crappy electric guitar and electric bass. And we just kind of went into the. We must have been like 10 or something, 10 and 12. We went into the basement and just had no idea what we were doing at all, how to even make sounds on these things. And it was like a Shags situation.
0: (laughs) But wait, so there one is there was a jam room in the house?
1: We had a basement where my brother's rooms were at that time. And then there was like an open room that was like, I don't know, there was a ping pong table. Our brat's dolls were down there.
0: (laughs) I did How many siblings do you have? It's sounding like a lot.
1: Yeah, I have six siblings.
0: Oh my God. Okay. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What was that like growing up?
1: It was cool. So I'm the second youngest. And for nine years, I was the youngest. So I definitely have middle slash youngest child syndrome of the most outgoing, the most accident-prone and (laughs) attention-seeking within the family context, for sure.
0: (laughs) So you're playing music. Music is everywhere, clearly. It's an amazing home to grow up in. Mm -hmm. At what point do you start thinking, this is real? Like, I'm going to do this for a living. What were you studying in school? What was inspiring you?
1: Yeah. So I guess it never seemed like an illogical or like unreasonable (laughs) career path for some reason, even though my dad isn't like making millions off of his bar gigs, but it's something he's always done. It is his main source of income. And it just didn't really dawn on me that it's a career path that a lot of families don't encourage. And when I was in high school, there's this other wave of like, I don't know, musical influence that's coming through our town and our generation, which is all of the like new folk stuff, right? Like punch brothers and goat rodeo sessions and crooked still, all of these like neo trad bands doing acoustic music and i got really into that at an early age and that was for me as an upright bass player primarily and someone who grew up going to fiddle camps and everything like that was the path that i saw as attainable i was like oh i can see how you get from one place to another in this scene
0: did you love the music was it also the music that was attracting
1: uh, yes me? yeah definitely <laughs> i was yeah obsessed and in rural maine like you can go to contra dances with your friends and that's normal <laughs>
0: It's interesting, too, because I'm detached from that scene and that genre, but I remember those band names really well. And it's interesting how I'm just thinking about it in relation to what was happening in California in the 70s and the acoustic rock folk movement. And then I was thinking about it in relation to what you were saying and how it was kind of anchored in the alternative seat when it came through at that point, too. It wasn't seen as this singer-songwriter mainstream. It was... Right. It's interesting how, and again, I don't know why it's formulating my brain like that, but the 90s, any music that was like that, that would have been called its own scene, was also lumped in with everything else. Mm.
1: Yeah, I do think that people who play that kind of music do see it as like a countercultural yeah. something, mostly because, yeah, like that's not really radio music. It kind of became that as a result with Mumford and & Sons and these bands that trad musicians love to hate on. But like it's the next logical step for any quote-unquote countercultural scene as it becomes commercialized and then loses a lot of its grit or a lot of its communal elements.
0: I wonder if there's something, too, about just the angst of what was happening before it. And there's also some roots in artists like P.J. Harvey, I think, as well, when it comes to how it evolved. Also very driven by electric music. And mm-hmm. bass has also a very predominant role in it because of how it's emoted.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's something there.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the decision, though, because then at one point you made a decision. I know you attended Berkeley. Was that in the process of figuring out this is a full-time thing, this is the path? Or was that still in the process of trying to figure out if Mali's going to play the bass, become a composer and musician full-time?
1: I don't know if I had the long vision. So I applied to Berkeley and one other music school, and then I applied to a bunch of liberal arts colleges. And I really wanted to be a full-on music school, music career person. And it really came down to financials that I, I ended up doing a year at Berkeley and cramming in as much as I could, and then going to this other school where I got a full ride. It was a financial decision, and it was something that I really Lamented a lot not being able to fulfill the music school experience that's so standard now. It really is the new standard for professional, especially jazz musicians. Even in that folk world that I was kind of in at that time, everyone was doing that. And I felt like I was like, I don't know. I think the reason that I worked so hard to keep developing as a musician was because I felt like I wasn't getting the same stuff as all of the other people who were going to go on to be successful.
0: So was it that you knew you only had money for one year? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It
0: must have been, it sounds like a lot of pressure in the sense of you really want to make it count. I know people who go there and float through and jam in bands and don't, sounds like you were like, I'm going to take this quite seriously.
1: Yeah. I've always been very studious too. So, but I, um, I definitely like, you know, it's funny. A lot of the people who end up going to these prestigious music schools, but especially Berkeley, I think, they either have a lot of money, and so they can do that floating thing and not really take it seriously, or they've been trained from a young age and gone to every single prestigious camp, and they've done the summer programs and everything. I wasn't that person, you know, and I grew up in a rural area without a lot of those resources, and so I, when I got to Berkeley, I had just a lot of musical catching up to do, so... I think a lot of the cramming was just being showing up and realizing like oh man like a lot of these people who are entering freshman year at Berkeley could already be professional and I was definitely not right. that bassist so I I learned how hard I would have to work in that year
0: So tell me about that year what was it like for you what were you learning what was different
1: Um well, exposed to a lot of new kinds of music, especially in Maine, where I grew up. We didn't have the jazz standard world that people live in, where you're like, if you want to be a jazz musician, you have to memorize every tune that's ever existed. And
0: the you know, fake book, yeah.
1: Yes, the but, fake book. Right. Obviously, I had a fake book, but I didn't know that it was so serious. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, this is just a cool little resource. I showed up and realized that everyone there. The prerequisite was memorizing all those tunes if you're going to call yourself a jazz musician. And um, I had kind of a different entryway into jazz through growing up where there was this one jazz camp that happened in my town that was populated by a lot of Brooklyn avant-garde teachers. Cool. Yeah. And so the first tunes that I played were free jazz tunes. They were Ornette Coleman. Yeah, we played Lonely Woman and that was my first experience of jazz. And I was like, oh, dope. This is what it's about. Amazing. Amazing. And so the fake book wasn't really part of my vision of what was required of me. And then I came to Berkeley just totally blindsided by all that I didn't know and was supposed to know by then.
0: (laughs) So it was less about the playing in that moment and more about the theory. Is that what you're saying? Meaning it seems like you were comfortable playing. It was more the theory side and the language side and the, the rails, I guess we assume, that are around this thing.
1: Yeah, I was comfortable playing. I was comfortable playing by ear. Yeah, I wasn't comfortable with the rules. And I I learned a lot of the theory when I was there, you know, but the structures, the disciplines, the rigidity, that is a part of jazz pedagogy at this time, which a lot of people rebel against. I was a little bit of an outsider to it. And I also couldn't fully justify the amount of time that it was going to spend to get inside of those rules and adhere to them. And I've always been that kind of person anyway i grew up in a barn literally in maine and i'm just like whenever there's like rigid structures and rules that i'm supposed to know about i'm always the person that doesn't understand them
0: i mean i think that that's what ultimately makes a unique composer thank you when i think about the songs that have moved me in whatever genre they are i feel like there's always that person who's either creating it or part of it who might even know the rules, but knows enough about the rules to know that that's not going to get you where the song needs to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what I'm most drawn to when as a listener and as a student of composers as well. And yeah, and there's also this, it's like, I'm interested. I've always been interested in knowing what the rules are, of course. It's not just a blanket disrespect of everything because I, I respect the tradition deeply and I respect how those I don't respect the jazz pedagogy at this point, not very much, but I respect the tradition of jazz, and I can see that those rules are just what people took from observing the frameworks that were being developed by these really brilliant musical engineers that are the jazz founding people, right?
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, but while you're there at Berkeley, this is the beginning of Lula Wiles.
1: Yeah, kind of. Lula Wiles was made up of... The three of us, Ellie Buckland, Issa Burke, and I. And we met when we were in Maine, living in Maine. We're all from Maine. Ellie and I grew up in the same town, and we met Isa at fiddle camp. So our first performances came before the band was created, but yes, in the Boston
0: years. They both went to Berkeley as well.
1: They did. I was the last one, to, So it was Ellie was the oldest, and then Issa the next year, and then myself the third year.
0: Now, did they stay or were they one year plans also?
1: No, they stayed. Well, Issa graduated. Ellie was there for four or five years and didn't graduate. I think she might have just recently graduated, though, after a decade. So I was going to say, you know. <laughs>
0: took some time. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Victory lapse.
0: Talk about the band. I mean, this is a, I don't know how to classify them. I think it's pedantic to call it folk rock. It was something else that was going on. Talk about what you were trying to do with that band because there's success there.
1: Yeah, well, the origins are in that kind of world I was describing. Seeing bands like Crooked Still come up, and really, honestly, like I know that a lot of prestigious modern folk trad musicians would not cop to this, but the movie "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" I think was like so huge for our generation. So that was the kind of unifying cultural moment for getting kids into this. Traditional music. And when we first started playing together, it was because we had this common repertoire of traditional tunes, Acadian and Cape Breton and Quebecois, and all these kinds of trad musics that come through Maine and uh, old time, obviously, up from the South. So we started just wanting to play trad music. And then when the other two ladies went to Berkeley, they got really interested in songwriting. And they started a duo. And then by the time I showed up, they were like, great, we need a bass player. And
0: (laughs) perfect timing, Molly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was like that. So when we started, it was really like in that kind of realm of traditional songs and new songs. And then I guess it just grew as we did, where our musical interests grew. We wanted to be electrified. We wanted to reflect modern times and not just be like derivative of an era of music that was decades and decades ago and so it developed that way uh, because I was simultaneously studying a lot of other kinds of music experimental music avant garde jazz also because there is a certain a certain whiteness to like americana music and sounds and we definitely were starting to fall under that americana umbrella i started to want to put a bit more rebellion forward through the music lyrically sonically and so That, to me, explains the kind of evolution of that band and its music.
0: I want to talk about the bass playing in particular, how you were seeing it. Were you seeing it as filling out between the instruments? Were you seeing it as a voice on its own back then? How were you seeing the actual bass playing and how you were thinking about your playing? Because again, when you're in a place like Berkeley, you're seeing so many different types of players. Some of them are taking the bass as a lead, some of them are taking it I don't want to say even in between the instruments, because I think if you're at Berkeley in general, you're probably looking to experiment with the voice more than just sitting in the pocket. Mm -hmm. How are you thinking about the instrument at that point?
1: I think I was going back and forth. I think some of my earliest bass influences are people who had the deepest pocket, the strongest quarter note, whether it was Ray Brown or Paul Coert. This kind of quarter note that can do so much so simply. And then on top of that though, they're extremely virtuosic and have this voice and so I always was valuing both the simplicity and the ability to do more complex things. And there were a lot of bands around us, even bluegrass bands that where the bass was doing like way more than the typical bass role. And so I was exposed to that, but trying to be very conscious of not forcing that into a context where it didn't belong. And I think Lula Wiles was one where it didn't really, the bass didn't want to be a lead instrument, but I, I've always seen it as a melody instrument as well as a percussion instrument. But I try to find ways to emphasize that. And I think especially in the trio context, there are a lot of ways that bass can have movement that's melodic.
0: You have a lot of players that are probably being spoken about in the hallways and the jam rooms there at Berkeley. I'm sure the name's Jaco Pastorius came out more than once. Who were some of the other players that you would look to and maybe that they didn't even inspire you, but just made you curious to explore the instrument more?
1: Yeah. Edgar Meyer was a really big <sighs> one at that time. Yeah, And it's crazy because the bassists that I'm drawn to are either very greasy basis or they're very ethereal players and edgar is definitely more in the ethereal to me you know how he can play the violin on the bass like it's just insane right and then there are people more in the realm of oh i don't know slam stewart or like mingus obviously yes, everyone everyone loves mingus but just the kind of grounded unbreakableness and the grease of every single note you know what i mean and i don't know i feel like at one point, in my musical journey, I would have definitely said that I wanted to have the nimbleness and the groove of just like deep old time fiddler, but the greasiness and the pocket of someone like someone like Mingus, you know. And
0: were there modern players too? It sounds like you would have been a huge fan of Pino Palladino or that type of playing.
1: Yeah, I, Pino's amazing. Paul Cohen again was really big for me. Bridget Carney.
0: Oh, she's amazing. Uh, she's so oh my God. amazing. Yeah, and we had her on this show. She's amazing.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah just and Esperanza as well. But Bridget like really like showed me that there's no rigidity to how big your musicality can be, even though you've signed up for this instrument that isn't supposed to stray too far, you yeah. know. And she really reinvented how cool the upright can be in modern music. To me, and and seeing her, she also like just as a person, right? She studied at Tufts and NEC. You know, she like she yeah. never like took no for an answer, and that's something that's always really inspired me because sometimes the answer is no, and you have to figure out how to make it not be no.
0: <laughs> There's something really beautiful about artists, and I include you in this group that have the only word I could use to describe it is Renaissance. Mm. It's a bit of this vibe to it. You'd say like a Renaissance man, but obviously renaissance person that this idea of there's so many places you could pull from but there's something very modern and new about it that's different like i love that type of player always Mm
1: -hmm. yeah we're in this era of professional musicians that most people now go to music school as a communist (laughs) makes me (laughs) upset um (laughs) you know and and but like with music school right you're supposed to study so deeply study every era of music and there's this kind of idea i don't know like at a certain point you have to be able to blur those eras that you've studied and find the middle ground and find where you are among that it's like this big swirling pool of influences and you're probably going to get judged if you're too much like one person or if you're not enough like someone else i think like young people now are doing a really good job of deciding that it's all important. You know, all of these influences, like you're allowed to combine, you know, some like mumble rap with like folk music. Like, why not? Like, figure it out, you know? Like, we can't deny that we're exposed to the last hundred years of music easily now through streaming, through everything. And we have to find our place in it. And I think it's a beautiful challenge.
0: My other real job, this is my passion project, is in business and technology and innovation. Watching some of these artificial intelligent tools take hold in these digital studios is pretty wild, too. The fact that you can just prompt it to add in a fiddle or prompt it to sit further back on the bass beat or add more hi hat. That even the skill of studying music is starting to feel very secondary to your ability to leverage the tools. And the other story that it's sticking out as you were speaking, is Polyphia. We had Clay Gober, the bass player from Polyphia, on. And I've watched a lot of interviews with their guitar player who is trying to use real instruments to mimic digital sounds, scratches, oh. and different types of playing. Almost like we're starting to see this new birth of vocalists who sound like they have auto tune.
1: Whoa, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy, isn't it? It's like the conversation between. The digital advancements and the musicians. And it, like, for a long time, we were trying to get the digital to mimic reality. And now the reality is.
0: <laughs> it's mind blowing. Yeah. It's mind blowing it because you hear the music and you think, well, it's just full of samples or they're auto tuning. And it's actually them spending hours of trying to get a guitar to sound or a bass to sound like an electric segment, mm-hmm. a stem. It's wild.
1: I still take it very personally when people. Don't use a real bassist.
0: <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Yes. There's a band that's in this modern hard rock metal guitar world called Animals Leaders. And Tosin Abassi's an incredible guitar player who's got his own guitar on, but they don't have a bass band. Makes me crazy. Oh. But I like I love the band and they sound amazing. I'm like, but you gotta have a bass player. I know. <laughs> makes me nuts. Makes me totally yeah. insane. Very you mentioned expensive. the word communist. You mentioned <laughs> the word Americana, but a bit more rage. We haven't spoken about the way in which you bring your own roots to music as well. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about whether it's culture or politics and how much it's a part of how you think about music? Because I think the brightness of your music is the fact that you are bringing in some Aboriginal First Nation spirit to it. Mm
1: -hmm. Coming up playing a lot of trad music, American trad music, Um, you know, a lot of that music. I learned from white folks in Maine, only to come to find out that it was invented by Black Americans, of course, you know, almost all of it, and co-opted and, you know, segregated by the recording industry in the 50s and 40s, right? And and so, like, there's this, like, big kind of conversation and reckoning that's happening in the folk music community of, hey, like, maybe we don't play this fiddle tune that has a racial slur in the title of it anymore. Like let's address that. Let's figure out like yeah, what you do with these tunes that you love that have really problematic origins or you know, and and even just requiring that part of the the sacred, you know, folk jam session includes discussing the history because it's important and it's actually like vital to the folk process to know what you're doing and what you're talking about and what the history is and so i kind of came up in that world of folk music and at a certain point we're playing with lula wiles we're writing songs and i was frustrated by a lot of the americana music that i was hearing that is like you know just the kind of like lyrical landscape that That genre invites is like glorifying westward expansion and glorifying periods of American history that were really terrible for everyone that wasn't white. And so, as a lyricist, I think first and foremost, I started wanting to rebel against that and recognizing the thread of the folk tradition that is like songwriters writing about justice issues, right? And my band split up over the pandemic, and I had been working on these jazz tunes through my studies my jazz studies, my avant-garde, my composition studies at Dartmouth with my mentor. And I was like, you know, I'd love a way to incorporate the folk music that actually comes from here longer than a couple hundred years ago. I was pretty like revved about it at that point of like, I was like, you know, I'm going to make this album that comes from me, that comes from the thread of my musicality that people don't know as much, that people didn't really know that I was like a jazz musician as well, because I'd been showing up in folk spaces for so long. And I was like, well, I'm going to come out with this album and everyone's going to call it jazz. They're going to call it like, you know, wacko free jazz, whatever. Right. And I was like, I really need people to recognize that this is folk music as well. And then the more that I like had that as my mantra, you know, like this, these like indigenous songs are folk music. Jazz is folk music. Jazz is a tradition of the people as well. And a communal music, like the origins are the same. And then I was like, you know, actually, though, my predecessors in even in avant-garde music understood this as well. You know, Don Cherry, Mingus, they were adamant that what they were doing was folk music as well. So I don't know, I guess, I don't know if that answers your question or at least starts...
0: It does, but I think it's a worthy conversation for us to linger on a little bit. Yeah. This idea that, because where you started was this idea of folk music, African-American slavery acknowledgements, but this other side is equally deep, if not longer, which is the indigenous story. In my other podcast, I have a business podcast where I interview business leaders and we talk a lot about DEI and issues like stop Asian hate and Everything that happened with Knee on the Neck and that whole movement while COVID was happening, I was here in Montreal concerned of the world of George Floyd and beyond, but also staring down the realities of the residential schools. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about it more reflectively, it felt like as America was battling with George Floyd, I think Canada was feeling more of the Time again to talk about truth and reconciliation, indigenous issues. Mm -hmm. And here you come along and we're having this conversation, and we are. We're somewhere in between this traditional folk, which is African American. But I don't think so because when we say traditional folk, it can be indigenous, which runs a lot longer in this territory.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's both. It's both. And because of the nature of the attempt to erase indigenous people and indigenous influence, um, in just like modern American culture as is, you know, I think that it's, it's a lot easier to say, Oh, well, it's, this is like just a black tradition or, and, and I, I definitely, I always am careful to make sure that it's not coming across that I'm undercutting, like the amazing culture that black communities have created, you know, um, to pass on to their descendants. And that's like, Just a very sacred process that I respect deeply. And there has been so much intermarriage, first of all, but also collaboration between Black and Indigenous communities since slavery, since enslavement and musical concepts. You know, there's no way that we can go back and say for sure, like, exactly when there were these musical exchanges and how they influenced each other. But there is a trail that we can trace of big band musicians developing big band and small band musicians, developing swing and these rhythms that are inherent to swing music that also show up in indigenous drumming styles. And I have a friend who's Wondat actually, who researched and found that in Cab Calloway's band, he instructed his drummer to feather the bass drum like a powwow drum. Wow. You know, And so, yeah, and Cab Calloway, I mean, that's like, that's early, right? And so there really is a paper trail here. But I think also the exchange is ongoing. And at every era, there has continued to be exchange between Indigenous and African American cultural traditions. And the more that we can emphasize those, the more we look at our shared history as well. And of course, Native friends of mine and I, we have a crew of Indigenous jazz musicians down here, and we're having these conversations regularly, but we also emphasize that residential school played a big part in getting jazz instruments and jazz ideas into the hands of Native people.
0: It's a strange conversation to have because it transcends politics, it transcends racism, it transcends almost all because when music resonates, it resonates in ways in which, you know, we don't necessarily understand it. Hearing you say that you have that type of group is unsurprising, but even in preparing for this conversation, I found myself realizing I need to do a lot more of my own self-education and awareness around the fact that there's a very long history of native jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. And I think the default would be that they're playing African-American traditional jazz as we've known it in Americana. But I think what I hear you're saying, and maybe more work on my side for sure, is discovering what did this music sound like in relation to that? Because I'm assuming they weren't just playing the fake book.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, man, I really, I wish there was more recordings of like the
0: beginning. This is the thing, right?
1: It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's, I mean, and you say you have research to do, but like, so do I. You know, I think there is actually probably a lot more there that we can find. And it just, like many indigenous topics, has been very understudied.
0: I'm just wondering, and I'm asking this out of total ignorance. And if you don't know, then we can just move on. Or I think it's a great moment of education. If American culture abdicated a lot of what was happening with the African-Americans, do we know why that same wasn't done in terms of actual Native music, or was it?
1: I think that Native music has, well, first of all, especially in the 1900s when people were going around with recorders, Indigenous, at least in the U.S., Indigenous songs and dances were literally illegal. Okay. So that would be a probably a big reason, but also I think obviously we continued to do a lot of that stuff. But it was very close to home, very closed communal scenarios that we often had to do in secret, like away from the Indian agents, away from any kind of eyes. Where that didn't happen, obviously, was in residential schools because we were playing other kinds of music. We were right. playing, you know, Western musics introduced, and on the reservations, we were encouraged to sing church music, right? And that's a big thread in my album and and a common shared thread between indigenous and african american musical origins post contact.
0: Do you feel that there is something in your work that is compelling you to bring a lot more of this music into the present? Do you think about that? It sounds heavy when I say it. And maybe it's not that heavy for you. It's just the nature of who you are and all your influences and in music as music it's all there. But do you feel that perhaps there is a need to bring some of this into the more modern times?
1: This music being the traditional stuff or the
0: More traditional stuff? stuff, yeah. I
1: think that we're definitely in a time when there's a lot of Indigenous pride and there's a lot of Indigenous empowerment. And we're really celebrating that we have this ancient cultural material. For me, like I just... I sit in gratitude knowing that this is these are like ancestral things that have some of these songs and stories have existed since literally the ice age you amazing. know yeah. and I'm like wow that's amazing and if we talk about this it will give people a greater appreciation for the kind of knowledge that we hold we've seen for instance we've seen indigenous people adapt to vast changes in climate and social and geopolitical changes over the last 12, 13,000 years in my territory. And so having survived several very intense climatic events, as well as political events, the word apocalypse, I think is applicable to a few things that we've survived. And as society is facing a time of uncertainty and of impending climate apocalypse, indigenous people, like if we can recognize the knowledge that we hold and all that we have overcome, perhaps people will start to recognize us as potential leaders of how do we survive this next one? Because Americans don't have that experience, but we do. So maybe Indigenous people should be at the forefront.
0: (laughs) I'd like to see more of it. I'd like to think people are doing more of it. I'd like to think it's not just lip service and it's real. It's always hard to know when politics are at play with it, but there seems to be Not just an awareness, but I feel like when music like yours is created, there's this real opening of a door. Even when I was reading the reviews of Sweet Tooth, it felt from a lot of the reviewers that you were opening doors in which perhaps they didn't think the genres would pollinate. Mm -hmm. Or that the music could be generated that way, which is a very, I think that's a very complimentary place to be.
1: Yeah, 100%. I'm really happy to be able to yeah to play these shows and these venues that have never heard noises like this before <laughs> but then also in venues that have never heard stories like this before and really connecting dots like i feel like i'm in a position of guiding people through history and musical evolution as we're doing these shows
0: so you're traveling it's a sextet is that what it is
1: yeah we've been traveling with a sextet
0: it's insane tell me why that's insane what do you mean
1: well so i'm 27 i spent most of my early career touring with a trio and then a quartet but generally a band that could fit into one car and i think my like naivety most of all was like the reason i was like and my dedication to three-part harmony as a folk musician you know i was like oh man like i gotta have three horns so that we could do three-part harmony And then I got to have the rhythm section that I want. And I didn't think about like how logistically. Mally, you did.
0: Mally, you grew up in a family where nobody was getting into one car.
1: Exactly. You should have known. (laughs) I know. Oh, man. And I crave it, you know, coming up and like singing so much bluegrass and old time, like three-part harmony singing. And like, I just, if I don't have that. There's something missing for me musically, and it's something another composer is not to go off topic, but like people like Charlie Hayden, another big influence for me as a bassist and composer, and just overall life story. We have like a lot kind of of overlap there. But anyway, being a band leader is new to me, and there are so many challenges. I'm just learning every day and trying to stay afloat. Six bandmates is it's a lot to figure out, but. Okay. It's the sound I want.
0: You also sing, I'm going to maybe butcher my pronunciation of this, in Abenaki? Abenaki, yeah. Tell me, what do we need to know about that language and its richness and why sing in that language?
1: Yes. So everyone should learn the language. <laughs> everyone should, no matter where you come from, because that language contains so much knowledge. And it's one that, so at Odenac, which is the Abenaki Reserve in Quebec, that language, there are people who there are a lot of learners. there are a few people who are relatively fluent in it, but the we only have one living first language speaker, so it's really like a vital time for that language to be re-emphasized and taken up by our people and anyone else who wants to learn in my opinion. And it's also kind of for me as a, a scholar, as a researcher, you know, I spend time in the archives, I listen to, these old recordings, the oldest recordings that were ever recorded on wax cylinder were Wabanaki people. Uh, Not my tribe, but the Passamaquoddy tribe in Maine, they were recorded in around 1890, the first ones. And so from like a
0: digital history
1: perspective as well, it's really fascinating. But I have to learn the language in order to understand these tapes. So that's my process.
0: So when you're singing in it, are you transcribing english to abenaki are you taking already existing phrases and putting music against it what was the process
1: so for some of it it was a song that i learned by ear and then went to a linguist and and speaker and was like let's translate this word for word and i think we got pretty close but it's like a treasure hunt really it's hard to know Yeah. And then for the chant at the end of Blood Quantum, we wrote that from scratch with words that we knew exactly what they meant, you know? So it really varies. And it's for me, because, you know, like, especially I think young Indigenous people will relate to this. There's so much That we need to do in order to be good ancestors. We need to learn our traditions. We need to learn our language. We need to like practice, not only like learn theoretically what our traditions are, but we need to practice and evolve them. And so, all young Indigenous people are carrying such huge burdens of things that like we have to do. And we also want to have our own lives and pursue our own passions. And so, for me, bringing The language into the music and going on this very intimate process with every time I'm using the language for a song or a composition, it feels like I'm doing my responsibility as an ancestor, as well as a creative person.
0: It's beautiful. Before we go, can you rattle off a couple albums or players? great bass that you just can't get enough of like what are you listening to that you're like i can't stop this is just too good could be new could be old i don't i don't care
1: wow okay um oh man i'm always so bad at these like
0: (laughs) mostly because i'm trying to update my playlist it's selfish more than anything else
1: okay don cherry om shanti om i don't even know who the bass player is on that album honestly but it's just like Absolutely amazing. There's another one by Don Cherry, Dewey Redman, Ed Blackwell, and Charlie Hayden. Old and new dreams. That's an epic one. If you don't know it, oh my gosh! Uh, Ming's moves.
0: Okay, as well. Yeah, it's classic. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Anybody new? Anybody new that's exciting to you or music that you're really into now?
1: I'm gonna like email you later with all of them, but not be <laughs> able okay. to name them in real life.
0: That's okay. We'll wait for an email, and I will okay. include it in the blog post that goes along with this podcast. Your new album is called Sweet Tooth. It's amazing. I'm hoping we get to sit down for some tea or coffee when you come to Montreal for the International Jazz Festival. Mali, let people know where they can find out more about your music, all the stuff that you're doing online, etc.
1: Yes. My website, com, Instagram, Facebook, it's just my name, Twitter, I'm at FeatherbitchXX. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Morgan Enos told me never to change it, so I'm not going to. Yeah, I keep people updated that way. You can also join my mailing list and come to the shows. There will be many.
0: That's great. Molly, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh